You're listening to Red Center, your guide to digital cinema, filmmaking, and cutting-edge imaging. Hi, and welcome to this, our 75th episode of Red Centre. In the main chair, of course, Jason Wingrove. How are you, sir? I'm on the main chair. Excellent. I'm very well. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Well, you're in the director's chair. Okay, good. Of course. I, I don't know. I've known you for how many years, and yet I still feel like the VFX supervisor on your set. <laughs> Not that you don't make me feel very welcome. But, um, welcome. Defer to the director. <laughs> As it should be. As it should be. As it must be. It's an interesting thing. I once read a book that said that... Uh, that, that uh, let's see, it was I think it was plays are the um, the writer's domain, mm. and television is the producer's domain, like an Aaron Spelling production. Yeah, yeah. And film is the director's domain. I don't know what TVC's domain is. I think it's like. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> but speaking of which, you have everybody just... else's domain, but me. The, God forbid the director should actually have any kind of input whatsoever. Uh, biting sarcasm so early on the morning. It's first of uh, November as we record this, uh, as we like to um, tell you guys. This is. Um, uh, you fresh back from Adelaide, though. This is why I'm making a reference to this, because you've been actually shooting cars in Adelaide. I it? have been shooting cars, been whirlwind job, trying to shoot uh, about eight car spots in about four days, and it's just been freaking nuts. But uh, good to be home, good to be finished, good to be not shooting cars. Well, I'm going to ask you a bit more about that in a second. Um, I'm also going to just uh, highlight some of the stuff coming up later in the show. We're going to be talking to the guys uh, that were shooting with the Sphere on camera in uh, London or in mm. England. We um, alluded to this in an earlier one. We obviously spoke to the guys that shot with the epic uh, HDRX stuff in an earlier Red Centre. We thought we'd go and talk to the Sphere on guys. This is an area I think that's of incredible interest, not just for those of you that are interested in specialist stuff, but shooting with any camera with 20 stops of latitude, I think, is a, is a game changer. Yeah, because it's sort of we we sort of touched on it a while back when it was first released, and then it's kind of slipped into the the background. Obviously, being a fairly I, I guess uh, not for say, me. I've been um, so keen to hear about this. Gear. Well, yeah, but I mean, you know, uh, this is without a doubt the the thing I think is most significant um, coming down the pipe. Greater latitude. So yeah, uh, yeah, and I think DRPs agree. Um, so the other thing we're going to discussing later in the show is uh, I think uh, we, we had a bit of a, a Barney over uh, whether you build your own DIT station or not. I mentioned the triplicator. Uh, the triplicator uh, is now out yes. and we speak to Jason Diamond in New York who um, has one and we discuss how it exactly one? works. Cool. Yep. Yep. Great. And, uh, and, and what it does. Um, but before we get to the news let's just uh, go back to your Adelaide shoot and um, tell me what were you shooting? I mean it was cars but I mean was it a yeah, car, car commercial? Look, you know, yeah just sort of retail kind of end yeah, nothing, nothing to really write home about um, but you know there's some nice sort of spots we did there how many days were you shooting uh four but we had to do a full 30 second commercial with dialogue and some with kids and with cars and lighting stuff you know lighting in and out of showrooms you know one two two of those a day so it was kind of nuts with location moves and so it's just kind of crazy but testament to uh not only i mean really good really good uh, adelaide crew uh, some great people down there and also the the fabulous um Tom Gleason, who was shooting down the oh, street, Tom was yeah, brought his MX down for it for us. So because um, there's no real, I think there might be one red camera down there. There's not a lot, and there's certainly no film infra- infrastructure down there anymore. So that's what obviously we're finding around Australia, and obviously it's a global thing. Is that the whole film infrastructure is really drying up, and you know, it's people are slowly closing labs uh, rather than opening them. Hey, look, I don't want to sound like I'm doing a plug for plug's sake, but. Um there's a really great line in Jeff's article in FX Guide, uh, the VF, VES Production uh, Summit. So oh, yeah. he went to that. Right. Um, and that's a very interesting article. It's got a lot of really good stuff in it. But there's one bit in it that 
Jeff comments on that I myself uh, picked up on, which is that, and I'm trying to remember who it was now, but one of the guys was uh, speaking actually from, I think it was Jeff Miller from uh, Walt Disney Studios. So this is the president of Worldwide Posts and Operations for Walt Disney Studios. So, you know, make a couple of films. Um, and he said, which I thought was interesting, that I think there's only one film that Disney has on its slate at the moment that's being shot on right, film. Right, that's shooting on film and all the rest are non. I wonder how, how many are actually on that roster at the moment. I, I don't know. Um, I think mm. he, he, in this article he, that Jeff did a terrific job on, he mentioned some really, really interesting stuff. Um, I think one of the things is the... Uh, is uh, he had this graphic about 1999 versus uh, today. Mm. And in 1999, there was one way of capturing you know, stuff, which was film. Yeah. Um, and uh, there was about 143 visual effects shots per film on average with two audio mixes, you oh, know, obviously wow. the stereo and the 5.1. And they, they put out the film in seven languages. Today, that same, uh, that same you know, kind of studio environment is producing... Yeah. Uh, five different capture methods. So they named film, digital tape, digital file, stereoscopic, and motion capture. Is that five? Right. Um, digital tape. Yeah, yeah. I guess so. Digital file. Yep. Yeah, okay. Um, and then he said they now have an average of 935 VFX. I was going to say it'd have to be pushing 1,000 for the top end, but they uh, have, 900 as an average is yeah, amazing. And they have eight different audio mixes. And uh, when they did The Lion King, the film The Lion King, yeah. it was front page of Variety when they released it simultaneously in seven different languages. Today, a normal film gets released, you want to guess in how many languages simultaneously? 42 <laughs> languages on the same day and date. Um, but anyway, yeah. So it's no wonder that stuff sometimes takes a while to get around the world here and there. You know, that's crazy. I'm sorry, I'm sorry to go with this nuts. article, but this is just my, no, uh, you know how much I love stats. So like, there's one other thing I want to mention from the same article that Jeff did such a great job on, which is, um, I, you know, I'm a VFX guy. So I'm like, yeah, the world revolves around me um, because obviously we're at the end of the production pipeline. It's ours. It's the last opportunity to get the film right. You know, you've heard all my cliches. Okay, so Miller. <laughs> the world revolves around post. Okay. Well, you know, obviously, I mean... The buck stops with post because if I you mean, don't do think, anything, everything stops. You'd think, right? Obviously. Yeah. But anyway, uh, Jeff Miller pointed out that on Alice in Wonderland, there were one... Sorry, not one. 13 and a half thousand tasks that had to be done after post was done <laughs> <laughs> to get the film released in the same day in 28 languages. Post of post. 13 and a half thousand post 13 and a half thousand things had to happen after things. VFX was finished. And I was like, really? Because I didn't think anyone did anything after. Okay, the audio guys maybe, but that's about it. I mean, so yes, so that's a little humbling. Anyway, that's all over at uh, FX Guide and, and uh, I'm, I'm not, it's not cross-promotion. Honestly, it's just no, no, one of the best articles it, Jeff's written in ages. So, um, so it's great. Hey, um, so because yeah, we've draft rapidly. You know that whole shot count thing, especially for you know, uh, for, um, even in non VFX heavy or not or, or appearing to be non VFX heavy, heavy, yeah. Like particularly as you said, like social networks, social networks, thousand, good example, thousand yeah. and and, and largely largely invisible shots. Yeah, um, crazy so, stuff. So you were shooting on uh, shooting cars. Yeah, just MX, but in the in the. Um, uh, in the showroom mainly, which was luckily we weren't actually out, you know, doing travelling shots, which we would never would have got through things if we had started to get on the road. But you know, Tom and I, the whole four days, we just you know every ten minutes just look at each other as we're setting up a shot, just look at each other and go, hmm, yeah, epic would be good about now. Now, now that would be good because you wanted the HDRX or oh, you wanted like a smaller. Want, well, everything. I mean. Every time you want to put it up, well, he, well, he was on. Well, Tom was probably looking over at me every time because uh, I just do these long takes, you know. That's why I kind of like digital. And he's got the red on the shoulder, and you know, he's got the 
Prime and a map box and handles and drives and bats and everything all on board. And, yeah, that starts to <laughs> starts to get uh, exponentially heavy as my um, direction drags on. Now, for those of you that haven't seen Tom, he's about about 150 kilos, he's, uh, six foot eight. Um, yep, he's Brit- no, he's not like quite. The, he's not uh, quite. The, he's the, actually like the Rock. He's much more. Uh, yeah, he's, <laughs> he's not. He's not the Rock. <laughs> I'm pretty safe to say he's shorter than me. And if anyone's seen he me, is, I'm not exactly. He is know, a normal I'm guy. Is what I'm trying to say. Thank you. And uh, yes, and so for a normal person carrying around a about five six, yeah, and, a, a rig uh, like that is uh, it's yeah. heavy. And yeah, yes. there's heavy. It adds up. So that's one reason. Well, and doing... the other reason would be probably just fitting in cars, rigging in cars, back of cars. As you know, you know, getting things in the what you want to show the how you know how, how roomy cars cut the roof are. Off the top of the car. Well, yeah, that's you know that, that you're lucky to even get cars, let alone <laughs> cut roofs off cars. You're lucky to get. Oh, sorry, we've only got white. Okay, well, have we got another car? I mean, you guys make them? No, not really. No, no, no not so here's much. a white one. Um, we so had Bob took it home. <laughs> yeah, that's, literally, it has been like that. Literally, you know, this happens with car yeah. jobs. Like, literally, you you know, you'll do running shots, and they'll say, "Oh, we've got to stop shooting Why? Oh, we've got nearly up to fifty kilometers on this car because you know, we've, then we can't really. It's not a demonstrator anymore, or something. It's not new. It's now considered a demonstrator. We have to swap cars, <laughs> or you know, oh, we, you know, you can't do. You can't do this. You can't do this little stunt or this jump with this thing because even though we really want you to throw it around and show how tough it is, because you know it's like, but yeah, go on. If it's something we bend a bit of plastic on, you just you guys just take it into the factory and just put another bit of plastic on. Uh, yeah, but this we didn't have any of these cars, so this is actually borrowed from a mate. So it's like you know, this is freaking. This is like you know major car launch stuff. Uh, so. But anyway, you want to be able to put cameras in corners of cars and put wide-angle lenses on them. Just literally just getting a car, getting a camera up another six inches inside a car is a real pain in the ass. You've got big burly grips and stuff and shop bags, and it's just a total pain. Because so, the big burly grips actually do look like the rock. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and you want to put them in, you know, just fitting five people in a car, it really just looks like some sort of 60s record attempt <laughs> with, with, with cameras, you know. And you're trying to do this and, and get a camera up high or in a corner or, you know, just trying to say and, and the director's saying uh, nah come down about six inches it's like right take four boxes out three shot bags turn it down change the lens and you know so if you just have something that's literally even half the size of, of the red and a little bit you know and it's going to be half the weight of the red one you know getting an epic inside a car is just going to be fantastic for one for a start, and if you imagine, then later on, if you've got a whole. I was trying big... to ask this question: Was it performance based? Or was it just? Oh uh, yeah, yeah, it's performance. No, it's performance. Okay, yeah, sorry. yeah, it was it was dialogue, but you know, st- cars have still got to look good. And yeah, all that stuff. So, how are you lighting the cars? Um, oh, pretty naturally, <laughs> really. <laughs> I mean, when in the show, in the show, I mean, oh, my whole thing was to really just be, and Tom was completely on board with it. So, you know, rather than add light, you know, take it away, you know, have negative negative fill versus, you know, putting putting in, in lights. I mean, obviously, you can't really always get away with that in the middle of a car and you're trying to light someone through tinted glass. But on the whole, just just working with the natural light coming through the showroom or working with the natural light out, out and about and just filling it in with reflectors or taking away with blacks. I'm a huge that, believer in that. Rather yeah. than just, you know, having... And also, it's a time thing, you know, setting up 18Ks and stuff. The amount of firepower that you need to fill in someone with sun than you do if, uh, you know, yeah. from bouncing it versus literally putting a, putting a light up is, is forever. And, you know, we literally, everything had to be all wrapped up, bang, put in the truck and then head to the next location in an hour. If we'd had a tower with 18Ks and stuff, it would just change, it would change the whole dynamic of the shoot and also the, how long it would take to do your uh, location moves. With 800 
uh, ISO, I think you can just do a lot of um, black cloth and negative lighting and, you know, get your contrast yeah, ratio up yeah. that way. Sure, but you spend a lot of time, um, and particularly in the showroom when you've got, you know, hot windows. Let like guess, 300, reflections? 360 degree hot window. I mean, reflections are kind of interesting because particularly we were on the road, but there were all the cars going past are doing all these cool reflections and just reflections, yeah. you know, just that sort of traveling wipes, like someone was out on the street with a big mirror just flashing it through frame. That was all good. But, um, uh, I mean, just bouncing hot windows and stuff like that. Uh, yeah, HDRX, bring it on. So that was another thing. We're just going, yep, Epic would be good around about now because we want to just be able to see, have that detail out there in the window to bring it down and not have to lift things up inside so much or not have to stick posters over hot parts of the window or or, put, or cut reflections off hot parts of the car. So Do you get a pre-light again, day anymore? No, not really. Do you get oh, you, a so it depends. Day? In the studio, you can sometimes build it in because obviously you're literally just walking in there with, with nothing and you're going to have to maybe rig stuff off the roof and that can be really off the grid, that can be really mm. time-consuming. So you would have definitely try and build in, for sure, build in a, um, a bit of a um, prep day or a bit of a pre-light day. But uh, certainly for this job, no, because literally we're building, you're working in, in, I mean, people's houses, uh, and also working in uh, a, sh- a working showroom, you know, so you can't really. So when you take walk into over, a showroom, how they long need every sale they can get. When you walk into a showroom, how long do you give yourself before Tom is having to start putting stuff down? I mean, in other words, like how long do you give yourself to walk around, work out the shot, and then go? Uh, we would definitely go and have a bit of a recce and then map that out. I think with this one, we didn't actually even have the pre time to do storyboards. So literally the day before. Uh, Tom and I and the creative director walked around with my 5D and we just shot virtual boards um, so we knew exactly, essentially, you know, what angles, what lenses, what we were and weren't going to see, where cars need to be. Um, so, yeah, Tom kind of knew what we were working with and also knew, you know, working with the schedule, he knew there wasn't really a ton he could get in. But the uh, the creative director and the agency on this were really nice guys, right? They were absolutely. No, that was good. That did that did help, and they were very. Actually, the creative director is an ex first AD and, and like a serious, right. like an experienced first AD. Very, very rare to find people yeah. in in uh, the agency side who have come from the film side. So they really knew that you know what you're up against. Always knew going into it, we can't have. He was also sticking up from his client saying, listen, guys, we're not going to be able to have all these shots. We're not going to be able to have like 10, 50, 10 million shots of dashboards and gear, gear knobs and, you know, and, and displays and things. You literally, this is with talent. It's about the talents, about the people. We need to uh, just get through it. So you know, it was great. It was really good, actually, a really good ally to have. So, Do you get enough time to actually have any rapport with the actors? Because in a, in a commercial like this, the actors really... Uh, <laughs> You know, it's not like you've got massive dramatic performances. Yeah. No, sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you've been to a couple. If it's, if it's you know, one commercial where you're only casting a couple of people, yeah. uh, you've got a bit of time to go to a casting and then also recall them to try something else or try, we like this guy, but we're like this girl, let's, get, let's have another recall and put them together and try them together. We did not have the time on this, in, particularly in pre. By the time, literally the first time I was actually physically meeting some of the actors was right there on the set. And um, <laughs> uh, there's this quite, uh, yeah, w- one of the eight commercials we may need some post-syncing because it was one of those classic things where 
we hired we one one guy we hired him to literally be just stand there and nod and you know and we thought yeah great he's fine tick him off he looks good on the disc he'll do and then someone along had the bright idea um possibly me later <laughs> later on that what if he said the line rather than this guy do the line why don't he do the line and we thought terrific it's, you know tough guy line this guy looks tough and it was the classic thing where he walked in this is a serious four-wheel drive. <laughs> oh, we all just go, okay. <laughs> so, better book some post-syncing time. <laughs> uh, really, no, tougher, no, deeper voice. Like, mm-hmm. so sometimes you just can't, you can't just basically say to a guy, be tougher. You know, you just, you either... Well, not if you want them to be anything less than know, self-conscious. You, are, you either are it, or it comes naturally, yeah. or you can't. You can't, sometimes you just... So, yeah, post-thinking. Anyway, so that's the perils of uh, uh, really short pre and not having any time sometimes to meet, meet or rehearse actors before. And, you know, because stuff changes. Yeah, plus, Things I mean, are. we should point out this was interstate, so this wasn't Jason shooting. Exactly, and there's cast coming, yeah. flying from Sydney brought in, cast, local cast that, you know, mums cast from one state meeting dads cast from another state and it was like here you go instant family and love each other <laughs> you know so it's kind of it's it's a really interesting microcosm of all the things that can go right and wrong shooting 800 i say uh yeah it was interesting to see. I, tom was pretty much just shooting eight 800 and we come sometimes i thought he was um so not so battling for light but we actually had sometimes too much light and then i'd say well push you know just drop the iso and he'd say, well, you know, I don't want to lose dynamic range. And then I thought, well, has we have we really tested, we weren't about to do it on the job, but have we really tested if you go either side of that ISO, if you go to 400, if you go to 1600, what is the, are you starting to lose, you know, I mean, it, logic would say yes. Well, this is one of those arguments we probably had 20 times on this show. I, w- I would simply say for your particular application when you weren't going out 4K, that you wouldn't be able to tell the difference because you're talking about one stop either side of 800. Oh, look, literally, yeah, just because I often want to work wide uh, open. Uh, one so stop. Tom's stacking in NDs to try and get me wide <laughs> open. Sorry, I think, I think we just heard you say again, I wanted to be wide open, <laughs> as in let's gaffer tape it at 1.2. What That's were you right. on? What lenses you like, on? What are you doing? Uh, I think we had master primes. Right. Yeah. So how fast were you going? Um, one, four? I think. They are like two. two? I mean, yeah. It varies across the lenses. Yeah. Um, so long lens or wide? Uh, everything, you know. Right. Uh, not, oh, just standard range. Probably just some sixteen wide stuff for inside side car interiors to make them look wide. And then uh, you know, I think we went up to about a one eighty because we had somebody up on a balcony, and you know, there was quite some distances that we really couldn't cover. So you know, just pretty much a standard set. But um, it was interesting thinking about the ISO. Do we, you know? If you're at if you just set the ISO to 400, I guess how how much are we diminishing that dynamic I mean, range? You would not pick it. I swear to God, if in my opinion, my humble opinion, if I showed you something at 400 versus 800 for your application, not going out to cinema, you know, 4K, mm. you would never pick it. Yeah, right. That's just me. Yeah, well, I just don't Tom, know whether Tom anyone's actually very, really tested it. Well, I'll happily test it for you. Please, thank you. I'll, I'll, your blind uh, uh, yes, ISO test, double blind ISO test. Thank you very much. And um, so let's go to the news now. And now, the Red Setter News. 
Okay, so leading the news, I don't, I don't, there's not a particularly lot of great news. Though, by the way, there is a new red website they've designed. Huge new news. We don't look at, we're not, you don't, when you go to red.com, you don't stare at a picture of Red Ray saying coming in 2009. Yes. That's, uh, that's, 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 you know. Though, I, somebody told me, progress. I don't know, I haven't seen it. Somebody told me there was a competition that if you design a, an additional new website in addition to this one, yeah. that you can win. I heard about it, and then by the time I heard about it, not that I was about to go and start designing web pages, but I think it immediately went anyway. I think it literally uh, they got such a lot of response, or they thought about mm, maybe this isn't such a good, a good idea. idea. It just sort of, I think it came and went pretty quick. But it was like a hundred. It was hundred thousand dollars or ten thousand dollars, something crazy. The thing about it is that I don't have any problem with somebody designing a new website for them. Let's go right ahead. The trouble is, if you had to design the whole thing on the off chance of winning. 10,000 or 100,000, yeah. then that's kind of... And then you've got support issues. I don't know. I, 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 don't, I don't care. Yeah, web is hard. Um, I do think, though, that uh, we just flagged the fact that there's a new uh, build-out for Red Cine X. Um, yep. Which is... It uh, seems that every time, by the time we shut our laptops here and record, we walk out the door and then there's another one. I, um, but, and I'm, I'm well, going to also say... <laughs> well, sorry, go on. But yes, today's, today's build is uh, 346. And, uh, and I just want to pass on that, um, for those of you who are wondering, that Storm is continuing I was wondering well. that, actually, because yes, it's no, going to be out in the, this month, November. Beginning of November, yes. It's, uh, so I can tell you that – what can I tell you? Hmm. I can tell you that it may not be out on the 1st of November, but this does not mean that it's fallen into a black hole. Sure. Internally, and to certain people, there are large numbers of builds uh, moving yep. and things happening, and yep. it's definitely uh, – but for example, well, so okay. Let me just say this point blank. Some people would say, "Well, just release it, bugger it." Sure. Well, but there's a rapidly. Can I, I'm guessing there's a rapid um, exponential fix. changes in alpha before it goes to. Yeah, I'm, I'm beta speaking release. hypothetically now. Sure, of course. But imagine that you had a release where something went stupidly wrong, like the licensing didn't work properly or something, right? Yeah. It'd be really sure. annoying to release that because you'd waste an enormous amount of time yeah. saying to people, oh, yeah, we realize that it doesn't open in some Max, blah, blah, blah. We'll yeah. fix it. It's a huge waste of time. You may as well just get all that sorted exactly. before you go to a yep. public beta. So anyway, I'm just mentioning this because it isn't – it's one of those things you might be like, okay, well, it's the beginning of November. Where's Storm? Where is it? Sure. And uh, I think it was just meant to be November, November but there was it got morphed. It might have been got morphed by me uh, into, the, <laughs> into start the start of November. But anyway, it is, it is all happening, and uh, and I can speak from <clears throat> certain amount of experience that sure. it's not like falling in a black hole or anything. Yeah, no. Look, it's um, I'm, I'm sure, as you say, it's going to be out soon. I it, it's not going to be like. A, a red version of November. It's going to be. Oh, yeah. shush. Um, I think, though, honestly, there's a genuine thing about it, if you can't. Like, I think it's bad when there's a vacuum. Like, yeah. well, we're hearing nothing. Yeah. So, all I'm saying is it's not a case of there's nothing happening and what's happened, it's all gone quiet. Yeah. Stuff is absolutely happening at a rapid rate. It's just, you know, not uh, necessarily uh, 1st of November. Because I'm, I'm imagining that, you know, when Storm comes, no offense, obviously, to Red Sin X, but. When, while the beta is out, most people are probably going to be playing with that and probably tinkering and trying to do what they're going to do with, with that rather than Red Cine X, I'm presuming. I think they'll be, that's uh, what you know. Um, do they, I mean, it being essentially a beta, isn't it, when it, when it releases, mm-hmm. are they saying not, are they, I guess the recommendation that goes with that would be not for professional productions? It, look, I think the thing about it is uh, the Foundry is a hardcore software company and it has the distinct three phases alpha, beta, and release. And when it's released, you should be able to use it in full-on production. Yeah. In beta, you could use it in production if you wanted to, but be warned because there yeah. may be some issues. With tests. Yeah. And, uh, mm. But 
you have to get it into a pipeline. So if I wanted to use it in, say, January, I'd want to have it now so I could test it, learn it, use it, blah, 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 yeah. do the FX PhD course on it. Um, that'll kind of stuff. So. <laughs> that sounds right. From memory, uh, for people that don't know, I'm pretty sure it's, like it's in free beta until... Yeah, until the new year. January or... Right, until new year. And then it's, like, you know, it's 300 bucks or so, 300 350 US. 350 US, yeah, which is, is good. Also in not so much news but nostalgia, uh, Red, uh, I think it was Ted, wasn't it, found a, a long-lost clip? Yeah, that looks pretty awesome. What I'm trying to find out from, from Ted or from... Um, um, Jared? Jared, is uh, what's the date? What is this date? They're out at the drag strip, which is essentially almost those very first long-lens 300mm mm-hmm. tests that we saw and this is, of sorry, the dragster. Just... Explain what we're talking about. Uh, what we've seen is essentially, even this is before even the earliest sort of like Frankie and all this sort of prototypes. This is a wooden cigar box with a Nikon stills lens sticking out of it and lots of uh, multiple multi-pin uh, connectors on the back of it uh, being wheeled around on uh, a, tr- a, a, a like a plastic trolley with a, a huge um, uh, desktop uh, or a tower computer on the back, on the bottom of it, essentially a very very large, um, very very early early prototype of the Red One. Uh, it's really really quite awesome to see. Uh, I think I've seen very vague pictures of this before, but it, uh, it was great to see it uh, uh, in the flesh, so to speak, with um, Ted uh, pulling it out of a box and uh, waving it around. It's quite interesting. I hadn't really. I was sort of surprised that it was in a really in a, in a wooden box. I really thought, you know, what would it just, be? Oh, well, if you're thinking about, you know, um, uh, sort of flange depths and all that sort of stuff, I would have thought at least some, even if it's some sort of zippy box straight off the, you know, uh, from mm-hmm. RS Components catalogue, some metal box maybe. But uh, well, I think it's. Oh, I think it definitely it's adds to the right. adds to the charm. charm. Awesome. So, All right, well, um, I think that's it for news. We don't even have much news. Yeah, no, it's a pretty quiet news day, so um, make Let's, up for some of the other apps. Should we go to the gear? Yep, sure. And now, the Red Center Gear Guide. Okay, so uh, first of all, in the gear, we're going to go, I guess we're going to cross to Jason Diamond for uh, his chat on the triplicator, which is a really quite an interesting piece of kit, following on from our educated discussion uh, a couple of apps back. Your, on... your ill-informed opinion. <laughs> <laughs> Let's cross uh. now to Jason. And so we uh, actually have Jason on the line from New York. Jason, how are you? How do you do? So I guess the, uh, as you probably heard in Red Center past, I um, had a large discussion with my uh, colleague, uh, Jason Wingrove, about this idea of being able to build your own in terms of an onset data uh, station and um, well, obviously you're a red user uh, as we are. And, and my as- my assertion at that time was there's a bunch of cool new technology coming along, like this triplicator. Um, so I guess <laughs> I'm looking for your support. Is this is this triplicator everything it's cracked up to be, or uh, or was I misleading Jason Wingrove? Uh, I think the triplicator is about probably 80% where it needs to be, but apparently they're working on the other 20% now. And I say that only because I, I, I can get into a whole – let me get into a quick description of what it does. And uh, uh, so essentially it was developed for by Glyph uh, Technologies who make the drives and uh, various things. And uh, Matt Cohen from TechServe, which is a big um, – I guess before the Apple stores were in New York, they were pretty much the premier 
Apple uh, reseller here in this in New York City in terms of like pro sales. Uh, mm-hmm. They do everything, but like you would go there for your pro sales, um, a lot of Final Cut uh, stuff. So I think he was uh, integral in the development with Glyph. So it's basically like a little intermediate appliance that gives you uh, three eSATA connections to hook up three drives, up to three drives, and hooks up to your computer, either eSATA or FireWire 800, and basically has two RAID 1 controllers in it to give you the, I mean, I guess ostensibly they could put four drives on it if you really wanted to between the controllers, but they did three. Uh, so it'll do three discrete copies of your data at with of, at the bandwidth of a single copy. Uh, so just to be clear about this, I plug it into my computer. I say, oh, look, there's a single disk drive on my desktop, though, of course, we know it to be three. And I drag and drop onto it, and it miraculously produces the same data on all three drives. The RAID you refer to does not mean that it turns the three drives into one RAID. It actually just completely makes three unique standalone walk-away copies. Yeah, so so what happens is as you, you hook up your one, two, or three drives, and there's a big giant red button on the back, and there's a blue light on the front. The blue light blinks, basically telling you you need to push the button. You push the button, and that tells the triplicator to create what I'm going to call a, basically a virtual RAID set. So that shows up on your desktop as says it needs to be initialized. You then open up uh, Disk Utility uh, in the Mac or whatever you use to format RAIDs. I just use, in this case, Disk Utility and just... You just it's not you're not formatting as a RAID though, you're just formatting the drive. You know. Right. So you just pick whatever, you know, um journaled it's not really even that big of a deal. You could just use the default. And it just you're talking about now how I format it. Like how what, you format it, yeah. Yeah. Yep. And then it just shows up as whatever you name it. You know, like a standard initialize on a drive. Right. Except that you've just initialized you've just erased all three drives and they are now appearing as one under this virtual RAID set. Right. So it appears to me like I have one drive mounted. Exactly. But the the file it goes over then gets made into three copies. From the original, the reason, not looped yeah. through. So, you know, yeah. three discrete copies. And so the reason I want to do this is I want to make three copies and I don't want to have to be fussing with either A, the dicking around, making sure that I've copied to different places, and B, it's just you know quicker. It's like one drag and drop operation. It's done, right. and I don't have to remember. Oh, I put it on drive A, but not on drive C, or whatever. Plus, I get this kind of confidence thing that I have absolute mathematical same on everything kind of thing. There's no risk that one person got one file and one person got something else. So that sounds like it's exactly what I want. So why yes. is it only eighty percent there? Well, because there's no checksumming option. Uh-huh. So you because of the RAID 1, it's on the playback, it's only picking one drive to play it back for performance. And if you were to copy the data off or play a quick time or do whatever, it's only picking one of the drives uh, for the performance aspect. So you, there's no way currently to say, like if you were going to use R3D Data Manager and say, sure, well, do a checksum for me, it, it, it wouldn't do it. It would only read back one copy. So there would be right. no way to verify the other two are there, even though 
ostensibly they are, but of course you want the verification. So there, uh, I had a long talk with, uh, Glyph after I, after my testing round, uh, the, I was on the phone with the product manager going over all these specifics. They are completely aware of all the issues, uh, including the checksumming. And then, so the other issue is that when you unplug the drives, let's, if you leave the triplicator on and you unmount the drive set and you take those three drives and you plug them into three separate computers, each drive is going to show up identical yeah. when you open up, as it should. Named yeah. the same, same file structure, everything. You, if the triplicator is still on and you haven't turned it off, you can plug those drives back in and your RAID set and everything will pop up exactly the way it was. Okay, that's what I'd expect. Right. If you turn the triplicator off, it basically destroys what I would assume is some sort of temporary buffer that it's using for the virtual RAID set, as I'm understanding it. Uh, so when you plug those three drives again, let's say you take the same three drives, you plug them back in, your blue light's going to blink again. Uh, so if so, you push that button, you're going to erase all three of your drives. So I'm on the set. We now want to move to a new location this yep. afternoon. I've dumped a whole bunch of stuff in the morning. I pack up, put all my stuff in my bag, head over to the second location, set it all up again. I can't now just plug everything back in again because if I do, it'll ask me to reinitialize yep. my drives and I would lose what I had from the morning. So now you would need up to three more drives to continue working, which is obviously uh-huh. a huge problem. And uh, I'm assuming it's going to pick the capacity of the lowest drive yes, as it's it, kind of default setting, yeah? If you mix and match, yes. Yeah. They obviously, in most cases, other than a Drobo, they recommend that you obviously have the same uh, drive sizes. And... So that seems to be a bit of a disappointment. I guess the other one uh, – so, so I'm, I'm on set and I have this uh, set up and I connect it up. I'm guessing a lot of people have Firewire 800 kind of drives and it sounds to me from what you just said that I can only triplicate to eSATA drives. Exactly. The Firewire was only to get into it, right? Uh, no. Well, what I did because I wanted to split my bus, so I did, I did the triplicator – because it's essentially a data pass-through, so you're not bottlenecking at the drive side. So I did yeah. the triplicator eSATA to three eSATA drives, and then I hooked up my source drive, FireWire 800, uh, to to not be on the same bus. But is the FireWire 800 in your scenario a source drive or yes. record drive? No, no, source, source drive. drive. Yeah, so, so the could, 800 is only... Oh, you could? I you could, could hook up... That, but I could only hook up the appliance Fire 800. The drive connections on the triplicator are only eSATA. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. So yeah. I can't make it two eSATA and one FireWire 800 drive? No. Okay. So, so you have to be specific. I mean, most drives these days, especially in pro applications, are going to be quad interface drives of some or triple or quad and. Yeah, uh, my friend, uh, I've got quite a few FireWire 800 drives I wouldn't mind still being able to use. Well, no, of course, of course. But uh, I'm saying, you know, I'm thinking generally like you're going on a job and the client's buying the drives for the job. If you're going on as a DIT or something like that, generally, you're either providing and billing it back or the the client's going to provide them and you would just go buy eSATA drives. 
Now, does the unit itself have its own external power supply, or is it pulling uh, power off, say, the eight hundred? No, no, it has it has a a standard, you know, uh, three pin, like a monitor cable, or yeah, not a brick, just a just a wait, is it a brick? Uh, I can't remember. I'm my so I can't I can't do this. For example, in the back of a car, no, it's there's or, no on an airplane, you no. know, kind of a no, no it needs okay. power. Okay. So it seems that would get me some. Is there anything else that's in your twenty percent that you think they need to fix? Uh, well, so there and there. When I talked to the guy at Glyph, he was as soon as I got on the phone with him, he's like, "I know, I know, we got to fix the raid." Uh, you know, the 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 power off, which apparently they're working on. They he said he's seen it working. It's not like oh, we're gonna work on it. Like it's working now. They just have to solidify it so that they can. Because this the is boxes. a very, very new product. I mean, it wasn't yeah. at IBC, for example. No, there's only a hundred of them. Right. Uh, I heard about it from Ted from Red. He was in the city. And we were doing some stuff together. And he's like, oh, have you seen the triplicator? I was like, what is that? And then and then Matt from TechServe actually came out with us, uh, I think, for lunch. And he, he, we were talking about it. And uh, he said, yeah, I mean, TechServe has 20. I bought the second one. So I'm, they're not flying off the shelves, you know. Uh, so, so now, I mean, this seems like a really good uh, option, and and certainly something that uh, that would fit in. I mean, let's get back to my sort of uh, main concern, I guess, which is just sort of how robust and reliable a piece of kit it feels like. Because some things like this, you know, just scream out you know, that they're kind of plastic and you'd be a little nervous about taking on set. Others feel really robust and, and a professional piece of kit. And uh, anything like this that's between my Mac and my or my, my yeah. data originals and my backup, I want to know I can rely on. So does it feel like a quality piece of kit? I mean, just It feels it? like a pro piece of kit. I mean, if you've, if you've held any Glyph drive at all, if it's exactly the same way. It's like full metal enclosure, uh, full same metal silver grill on the front with their little overly, you know, uh, airports, and and it comes in it comes in the standard plastic glyph, you know, uh, protective case as part right. of the price. It's it's, it's, it's only three hundred bucks, so it's not it's really not cost prohibitive, even if it was shitty, which it's not. Uh, no, but nevertheless, yeah, I mean the three hundred dollars. Almost is. I think it's a great price, but it's almost at that point that you go, okay. But if it's only a lightweight plastic flimsy case, spend the extra twenty bucks to put it in a housing. But it sounds like they've done the housing and that it does actually, you know, be something you'd be okay putting in your in your kit. Yeah, I don't know if it has rack ears, but I'm pretty sure if you, uh, I don't see why. I know Glyph makes or they support some sort of third party uh, racking system. So if you had a car, if you had a cart. You could put it in there, no problem. I don't see why. How, how do I know that it's registered all three drives and it's only... I mean, for example, let's say I plugged in only two drives. Would it still work? And if yeah, it would yeah, work yeah. With two, how you, do I know that it's registered all three and not going to be copying on two? And when I get home later, discover the third drive, it never even noticed. When you... when you, So you have your... This is a little esoteric and I th- hope they fix it, but there's you have your blue light blinking... When you plug in your drives, when it says it needs to initialize, you push the button. After the initialization pro- process, the blue light blinks, blinks red, and it blinks red the number of times the number of drives you have. 
So you kind of got to sit there and stare at it, you know, for 10 seconds, make sure you've seen the complete cycle and the pause. Red light starts blinking again. One, two, three. Okay, all three of my drives are on. Not the fastest method for verification so because if it's only appearing as one drive on my desktop my, my concern would be like normally i would just open up you know off the drive and play back um you know the proxy off the drive and obviously if the proxy plays off the drive in addition to any other checks i might be doing i've just got a level of confidence that yes the data's there on the drive look here's the drive i'm showing you the file right but if it's appearing as one file on your desktop then there's no way other than unplugging it from the uh, triplicator and separately plugging that drive in as a standalone drive that you can really validate that you've got a good record on the drive. Right. So that's what they're fixing with – well, technically well, – they're fixing that with the checksum, which they determined – or he determined when we were on the phone that they would have to de- they would have to work on that internally because they're, they're – device is what's controlling the raid so therefore they have to uh work out how they can get yeah. the raid to check some across all three drives also I, um, I would be tempted to have more leds on the front that lit up for, exactly you know like basically three drives are red because they're not any good or blue because they're not there yet um you know green because they're good to go and red because i'm currently recording to them yeah no absolutely um, so, uh, um, I mean, that's why they only made a hundred of these because they okay. just wanted to get them out. Uh, that's probably too many, but I'm sure there's a manufacturing limit on the run for pricing. Uh, dear but, product manager of triplicator, feel free to add more LEDs. Yeah. We won't well, I'm, I, they, I was talking to him about, they don't really have a public beta, but I made my feelings very strongly known to him that, that I really want to help make this thing work because it's almost there yeah and he was and he was very receptive to that so hopefully they're going to contact me and and let me just dive into that thing and so on the broader question are you with me that you would like to build your own in terms of piecing your own componentry to put that together or are you you know a a successful you know director and independent filmmaker and new york film person wanting to just buy a box off the rack, walk home with it, and it's just, you know, as Jason said, um, if the light is green, the trap is clear kind of thing. Uh, I mean, it's just a little bit of both. It depends what the what the situation is. I'm fine. You mean, like, making my own version of this versus buying No, this? no, no. I meant, I meant buying one box that would be everything that you would just walk up with a CF card or or whatever. Oh, the Marvin, and it like would, the Marvin and it would, thing or whatever yeah. it was. Uh, or would you prefer to sort of have your own laptop with something attached that you can do stuff to and and work that way? If if I was like a career or you know heavy duty DIT that was doing this every single day, and I needed to just like when I got to set, I drop the box and open it up and like let's roll would go for the all-in-one box thing, although I would probably build it myself. Yeah, but, okay. But, there, I mean, I saw one in NAB that was, I don't think it was the Marvin, but it was those, I forget the guy's name, uh, but it's uh, it was pretty sweet. But I, it's kind of, I would kind of want to know where all the wires are going myself. So if there's a problem, you got to be able to suss that thing out, like, immediately. 
which if you didn't yeah. build it yourself, you wouldn't really know uh, inherently. Yeah, yeah. I, I, and this is the point I was making uh, somewhat aggressively last week, which was, look, you know, I, I think it's great that you might want to buy an off-the-shelf thing, but in this area, I kind of think most people are going to want to roll their own if they're if they're technically fluent enough to want to be doing it at this level of making multiple, um, you know, uh, LTOs and multiple copies and doing all that kind of professional level yeah. uh, stuff, then they're going to want to roll their own. Obviously, buy off-the-shelf components like this triplicator when they've um, when maybe got to version uh, one point two. But but definitely, you know, that sort of putting the, the kit together. Yeah. The other well, thing that that the triplicator that they're working on is currently they're suppressing the raid rebuild. Uh, function of the card, meaning that if you had three drives on and one of them went bad, for whatever reason, if the the triplicator would just go down to two, like it wouldn't destroy the raid set, so you could continue to work if you had to. Right. Uh, if you put a new drive on there, currently it won't rebuild it. I told him that I felt that, that sh- they should make a little app or a widget that let you control that and give you the functionality to make that choice uh, with, yeah. you know, rebuild it. Do you really want to, you sure, you know, give me a couple steps of fail safe. Um, because his, a lot of the things that we were talking about, it seemed that the way they were thinking about it was, well, we sort of want to make it, they wanted to make it like really easy and, and error proof. And I said, you kind of have to give it up to the user at a certain point to, to like take responsibility for themselves and you don't. Need and I to think it's. A, I think it's a bigger risk that you just move locations, plug it in, yeah, and by pressing one button, it resets all the drives and wipes out all the data from the morning. Yeah. I mean that. To well, me it wasn't is even like, that. It was just beyond. It was the larger context of the device, just as, yeah. as some of their development ideas. And they're like, "Well, we're working on this and this and this." And I was like, "Dude, I think you're wasting your." This is my opinion to him. You're wasting your time on this like other area of development because. The user has to take responsibility for themselves at a certain point. If they're dumb enough to do something that they shouldn't do, and everyone makes an error, but if as long as you give them like one or two little clicks, like, are you sure? Yeah, I don't think you want to do that. Click the OK. You know, at a certain point, you got to sort of let the child go and say, sorry, dude, you just blew all your media. It wasn't our fault, you know? <laughs> yeah, we did actually say three times, yeah. you're going to blow all your media. Yeah. Yeah. So... So he seemed receptive to that uh, also. So, so where can people find you? Uh, they can find me at my uh, website, mbsproductions.com, which is like monkeys buy shoes. Where Actually, you, you, you just set a blog up there, right? Like a, a, new, a new kind of... Uh, yeah, where we, uh, uh, my brother and myself who uh, own the company are starting to... Uh, I'm not trying. I'm not going to like blog it for advertising you know, banners at some point, just for informational purposes. Uh, so I did a full review of the triplicator, uh, and that's, that's up there. Uh, I'm on the Twitters as uh, Jason diamond and one word and on the visual effects show with you and the other guys, which, yeah, we just did the, uh, social network. I mean, right. It was, it was with, a, a good show. Thank I, you. I actually liked it a lot, which, I wanted to mention something to you about that on the show. I had said that I thought that the dynamic range and some other things about the the look of the film was a little squeezed. 
Yeah, I think we disagreed on that point. I thought that actually looked really good up on the screen, the MX, and I think you thought the dynamic range wasn't everything that you'd know that you could get out of an MX, but I, yeah. I think we might have disagreed on that. So so a couple of days later, um, I had that, my mother-in-law was kind enough to watch my child, and my wife and I were went to the movies, and she wanted to see it. So I was like, oh, I definitely want to see it again, and it was at a completely different theater, and I think there was an issue with projection. I don't. I it's really obviously unknowable. But when I saw it the second time, it looked fantastic, and I, it really bothered me actually because I was like, "Ah, oh, shit!" You know, like I. I don't, <laughs> so, so what you're trying to say, Jason, is you actually did agree with me. I did agree with you, <laughs> and 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 some other things like I and because I had already seen it, I was able to take a lot of the comments that were swimming around in my head from what everyone had said that I either agreed with or disagreed with irrelevantly uh, to the point. But like I know Kanan was talking about the depth of field and I had uh, reread that ASC article about them doing the uh, shooting mostly at 1.3 and the master primes mm-hmm. wide open and just NDing back and really paying attention to that in the second viewing. I mean, the focus in that film is dead on like, razor thin it's so impressive oh uh, look I, I i totally agree and look if you guys are wanting to hear this uh if you haven't heard that podcast it's one of the um fx guide podcasts it's the vfx show if you go to uh just our normal fxguide.com website and along the top you'll see um uh the link there for all of the uh, podcasts which is probably where you got this podcast the uh, root center from um but yes jason and i and uh, a couple of others had a had a very good discussion about uh, about the Red MX filmed uh, social network, and, and it was a good discussion, wasn't it? Was, I, was uh, yeah. I really enjoyed that show. Yeah, I enjoyed it, which caused me to think about all the stuff that made me enjoy the second viewing even more, because I wasn't having to pay attention to story so much, and I could really watch just the filmmaking. Cool. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us about the triplicator, and uh, I'm so glad you actually did like the MX footage uh, in Social Network. <laughs> Thanks, man. Talk to you later. Thanks. Yeah. So it doesn't feel like it's quite ready for prime time. Is that right? I mean, are they going to update this with firmware, or it's absolutely going to get updated. Um, my opinion would be if you were on a major production, a studio uh, type production. Um, you could probably tolerate the problem with the uh, rebooting thing because, I mean, that's sort of a pain in the butt, but you could manage it. I don't know you could, on a major, major production, live without some kind of checksum indicator that things are copied correctly. But as you heard, that's all coming. Um, and I, Which you know, goes back to my light is green, trap is clean, the Ghostbusters <sighs> data machine, right? Dock the drive, hit the button, that's it. Anyway, and then you anyway. know. Come on, there's a lot of dull, there's a lot of... Highly intelligent people out there on film sets. There's also a lot of people who really shouldn't be left outside alone without some kind of safety helmet on. Okay? And these people sometimes work in data. You know, we've talked about these people that just because you can. Just so biting my time. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Just Mm -hmm. because, oh, I've got a laptop. I'll do your data for you. (laughs) Also, there's. But anyway, but I think this will be really interesting once it's sorted out because it's actually really quite an affordable piece of kit, isn't it? It's a few hundred bucks. It's not really. Yeah, no, it's good. I like um, the idea, I like the simplicity of it. 
Yeah, and look, quite frankly, I mean, this first initial limited run is uh, to get exactly this kind of feedback. And sure. if they were being arrogant and not listening to people like Jason, but as you heard, uh, the product manager's been really, really good in getting that feedback and, and working with it. So, um, yeah, and, and it seems like it's a hardcore professional piece of kit. I do, as I said in the interview, would love to have multiple LEDs at the front so it was simpler to understand if all the drives are working. Mm. But all that stuff hopefully uh, will come. Hey, can I switch to some SLR gear? And you found this uh, beach tech thing. Very, very minimal. No flashing lights on a piece of gear. Yeah, this I've been waiting for this to come out for a little while. It's very simple. It's um, a, a, just a hot shoe extension thing. It's called the uh, Multi-Mount 5D. Pretty simple. But all it's doing is allowing you to stick... If you're going very run and gun with a 5D or you know anything with a hot shoe on the top of it and you're running multiple bits and pieces like wireless mic receivers, uh, like the, um, any solid-state recorders like the Tascam or the Zooms and or little uh, wireless mics if you've got a little, or if you've got a little boom mic on there just to capture ambient sound for uh, Pluralize to help you sync it all up. Um, just basically, essentially, just goes onto hot shoe and then extends out. Gives you another four or five or six hot shoes uh, to adapt off that. Essentially, it's like a, imagine essentially like a circular ring thing with hot shoe mounts on top and bottom that you can put. It's them funny though, because I've I've seen photos of this thing, yeah. and you've got photos in the show notes. Yeah. Um, but when I saw the photos, I assumed it was rubbery, and right. it would be like expandable, like like a giant stiff rubber band yeah right because you see it vertically and horizontally but actually the vertical and horizontal is because it can be mounted vertically and horizontal not because you stretch it to get right. the vertical that would be version crazy mike well no, I, I thought it was like this stiff <laughs> rubber that you would just clip stuff on right. and therefore but if you, you look could... on that bottom hot shoe mount that is actually got rubber on the bottom of it so you can actually hard mount a mic onto this thing and the hot shoe mount itself is got a bit of a shock mount well, to not, it. No, a little bit. Not yeah, lot. it's got some. It's got it isolates isolating the body a little bit. So but you love it, right? Yeah. I think, well, look, hey, you know, I think it's really interesting. I mean, the amount of stuff. Sometimes you got to strap on it to five D. I mean, obviously you can't do an awful lot of weight on the top of the top of a hot shoe before things get really silly. But sometimes you do just want to pick up the camera and put a wireless receiver and a you know and a mic or a recorder on it, don't you? Yes. God, you are a tough room. No, no, no. I, I, you and your strap-ons. I think it's right. Um, anyway, I, that's can, my gear. Where's yours? Oh, no, you did that. All right, fair enough. You're off the hook. No, actually, uh, I did want to flag one other. No. No, go ahead. Keep going. Yeah. Oh, call me a tough crowd. Hey, um, uh, so you know the guys that do the... Um, HD transmitter thing that you got? Uh, Teradek people. Didn't Teradek come out with something this week? Uh, yeah, look, I'm, I'm hoping to actually um, I mean, they get a little something. bit more. Yes, they announced a uh, thing entirely more based on Red, which has uh, been in development, I think, with the Off Hollywood guys. Uh, now, I'm speaking right out of my butt because I haven't entirely researched it yet because I'm, I'm obviously going to hopefully get the, the beta software and, and test this out properly. Um, but the idea would be, theoretically, it's going to, uh, hook it up to your red via the SDI, and it will, and obviously also comes with software to go to with iPad and or laptop. But the idea is that it's going to take the uh, roll, run, stop flag that the camera sends through SDI, and get and trigger your the software on the iPad or 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 your um, laptop to uh, record, just sort of essentially log shots. So as you're recording, as it's recording, it's always saving, um, saving 
saving recorded files uh, for immediate playback. So it should be quite interesting. Along with that, I'm imagining, I'm hoping that uh, latency will also go down because one of the, the sort of little bugbears with the iPad part of this so far has been uh, latency, but we know they're working on that. So uh, obviously this is really just interest, just announced at the moment. They're um, uh, you know having deals at the moment with because uh, the licensing fees are, are kind of steepish. So they're offering you know if you get in quick and get it get a cube, or if you've just bought one, uh, you can get a, um, get a discount on the licensing for the software. Because obviously there's been a lot of a lot of uh, man hours, person hours gone into developing the software. But, but Red themselves actually helped yes. uh, uh, with the metadata stuff to make this, you know, as powerful as it is. This isn't just somebody that's got around to doing it. This, no, they've actually been working on this properly. Been with Off Hollywood, with Deenan, and uh, a lot of the guys at Red to develop this. So it's definitely some ha- hand in hand between the two, which is terrific. Um, so, and obviously, if you. And they're, if you, they're calling this proxy recording, right? Right. Yes. Exactly. So, so it's, um, but the great thing is it's all sort of going to be automatic, and uh, you can, you know, the files are just going to the roll stop thing is is really nice. You don't have to hit, remember to hit the button number of times on shoots where you know it's sometimes oh, yeah. I'm the only person standing in front of the monitor. And I want to play back, and sometimes you just want your own little quiet little playback. I, I think you mentioned that they're working with Off Hollywood, but I'm pretty sure they were also working with Michael at uh, Light Iron Digital. Michael's right. a great guy. I mean, obviously, so is Mark over it. Off Hollywood, but yes, um, so but it's good that they've got these you've got the red guys and you've got production, um, yeah, professionals also. I doing think it. also red, red has been you know a bit of the the instigated this and, and hooked up, got all everyone together to try and work this out. So I can only guess that because um, you've got one, right? Yeah, I've got the SDI cube, but at the moment I haven't, I haven't uh, used it an awful lot on set. Um, I'm hoping for well, I may just try and get the receiver as well that'll be really mm-hmm. cool and or hoping you know once the iPad thing that's my sort of golden well, you know golden the guys in London I'm at, heading for is getting 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 to get it to the iPad the guys in London at Shoot Blue which is a rental company yeah they're actually they just, renting it as standard with the cube the red that is with a cube and with an a iPad. cube and an iPad yeah it's interesting so I'm, I'm, I must ping them and sort of see what have you what have you cracked guys is have you you know what 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 sort of package you're renting it out with what software so but as I understand it, the the stuff you're talking about, the proxy recording, the nine hundred dollars per license thing, yep. that's all going to start first to the first, as in beginning of the new year. The yes, that's when it starts. Cost nine hundred, I think. If you if you start, um, if you buy the cube now, I think, or if you have already oh, okay. pre-bought the cube, I think you get either free or three hundred dollars or so. Depending, so, so depending the first on the first is the official it. launch date, but there's stuff happening before then. Well, uh, yes. If you if you pre-buy the cube, you can get the software when it's released for either free or three hundred, or yeah, you know, a bit of a sliding scale of purchase depending on when you've uh, pre-bought your cube or if you already have one. What I like about it is that you don't have to have any software running on the computer. You just have to have a shared folder that it can put the files into. So it's yeah. not like you have to run some special stuff on your laptop. Yeah, your, look, I mean, this stuff can get really painful really quickly. All that IP and, you know, IP addresses and stuff. I think that the more, and no doubt with all these guys' involvement, this is going to get uh, a lot simpler quite quickly. But on a steady cam, up to 300 feet away? Yeah, oh, it's, pretty, it's pretty impressive. And also when they release their... Um, their receiver transmitter paired kits that you know it's going to be bulletproof and it's gonna they're going to just see each other immediately and they're going to link and the also the uh, you're going to get a better um, transmission distances as well 
Right. I mean, this is all, you know, and, ho- and also obviously the uh, latency will go down a bit too. So I think, you know, it, it's definitely evolving, but I think it's, all, you know, going to be fantastic. Because literally, as we've said before, this technology, to get it good is, is mu- many more multiple thousands of dollars to get it right. I mean, people have been sort of talking a lot about, oh, just don't worry about getting a cube, just get one of these, you know, these sort of home HDMI transmitter things off eBay for $150. But, you know... Have you seen this stuff? First of all, it's, you know, the transmitters and the receivers and you've got to power it and it's, you know, clunky and it's designed to run off wall warts and, you know, you'd have to have some serious hacking to get going into there. So, anyway, I think um, um, play serious and, you know, get something solid. Well, I agree. I absolutely yeah. agree. So, um, anyway, hopefully we'll, you we'll, like get, it, we'll get our hands on the beta software and we'll have a bit of a play with it soon as. And so, looking forward to it. But... Uh, Yes, exponentially uh, evolving, which is good. Well, let's uh, cross to the Red Room, where we have both uh, James Stoney and Hugh Bowden. So I'll, I'll be mainly talking to uh, Hugh, but uh, James is there as well. Now, Hugh and James are the guys that have been working with the... Uh, well, let me just explain. Basically, what happens is the Spheron camera is an HDR camera. Now, Spheron make an HDR capturing device for doing stills, effectively a 360-degree uh, still, and they've made those for a while. Mm. So when you say Spheron, most people in VFX will know that as a device on a tripod. Uh, you sit it down and you press a button on a little sort of uh, laptop-y, well, not even like a notebook, and it does a 360-degree scan of the environment and produces, I think, 26 stops, like an astonishing range. Um, and it actually has a separate um, height adjustment, so you can then go to from position one, which is down, to position two all the way up right. and do it again. And because it knows the stereoscopic difference between those two, it can actually triangulate and work out nearly all the distances on the set as well. Right. And this is more stills and, Absolutely. and multiple and passes and takes totally. a while. Now, there's a second thing, which is the Spheron camera, which we saw first at uh, New Orleans where they had it, but it wasn't running. We saw it again in LA, SIDGRAPH, this year where yep. it was running and they had files on Nuke, but we weren't allowed to touch it. <laughs> and, and when I tried, um, I was escorted off the booth and uh, they closed the lid. Um, <laughs> but anyway, that was because I was trying to play with Nuke. Um, so anyway, I, but I've been a big uh, fan of this, so it wasn't from a malicious point of view that I was trying to um, hit it. And... Uh, Dr. Alan Chalmers in the UK got the first camera in in the wild. Now, he's working in a research um, uh, facility, and that is the University of Warwick. And he, uh, as part of the program, wanted to do, obviously, some real-world production stuff. So this is uh, where the other guys like James came in because um, uh, him and uh, I think it's Hugh Bowden um, are basically filmmakers. So now, so they're not... They're doing it as a test exercise in one sense, but they also just make films and they've made you know, indie features. And so what we decided to do was speak to James because while uh, Dr. Alan James is a particularly nice guy, um, in much the same way that we wanted to speak to the guys that actually shot with the uh, HDRX, we thought yeah. let's speak to some filmmakers rather than just um, my favourite type of people, which is people with PhDs. And um, <laughs> let's uh, cross to that Red Room interview now. But I should point out, we can't show you any footage yet from the Spheron because it hasn't been released. However, they are working on the film um, for release and they will have both a film and a making of of the film. And as soon as they are available, uh, we'll give you... Um, and re- revisit this. So I know the thing everybody would want to see is, of course, you know, the footage. Um, but this is really, really like the first time this has been used outside. Um, so it is extraordinarily early days. That being said, we are talking about a camera that's shooting 20 
uh, stops and from a company that really, really understands HDR stuff. So um, I recorded this earlier uh, in the UK. You're entering the Red Room. And so I have the guys on the line now from London. How are you? Good. Thank you. How are you? Good. So we're keen to talk to you uh, on a couple of levels. Firstly, we're keen to talk to you about this uh, production that you've got happening, uh, De- Delivery Boy. And, uh, of course, uh, coming on the heels of, I think, what was that, your first uh, feature film, that uh, Triple Hit? Triple Hit, that's right, which came out, um, was, was completed about a year ago. Yep. Uh, a nice parallel universe uh, case of visual effects helping uh, to tell a story, it seems. Absolutely, absolutely. We had, uh, actually, I think we had more visual effects per minute in that film than Titanic did, but uh, <laughs> possibly not as good quality. <laughs> Well, no, no, I wish I wish a billion dollars worth of box office on you. Um, but uh, yeah, <laughs> b- before we get into Delivery Boy, um, one of the things that brought this to our attention, apart from the fact that you were working with uh, the DOP, uh, Ed Moore, was the fact that you were working with the Spheron uh, HD camera. So I guess I just uh, if you could frame the problem for me as to how you came to be working with this rather uh, new and unusual HDR camera, um, that would be great. Well, I'm doing some consulting with a group at the University of Warwick that's uh, all about um, HDR imaging. They're called uh, Go HDR, and what they do is they do um, a lot of work on compression and display of HDR video. And they managed to acquire the first and currently the only Sphere on HDRV camera, so they could use that as a test platform. And uh, we decided that really the best way to test a camera is to go and make a film with it. So uh, that's kind of what we did. Right. So I've now I've met uh, Professor. Is it Alan Chalmers? Char- Chalmers. Alan Chalmers. Yes. Yeah. I've met him at uh, Sidgraph when he was uh, uh, initially getting that camera organised, and I've seen the camera last year, the year the following at Sidgraph in uh, that was LA. The yes. camera was at that point working, um, but really was still semi-under wraps in the sense that uh, they were deliberately keeping a low profile because of the nature of the camera's technology. They wanted to be able to develop it up further. And I got the impression that the University of, uh, did you say Warwick? Warwick yes, University? that's yeah. right. Had, had partnered to a certain extent, not only in terms of testing the camera, but helping develop some of the uh, approaches to how you might deal with the HDR imagery. So how far that's along good. is that? How how production uh, ready was it for you to do this test film um well the camera is very much a prototype at the moment um it does do some things incredibly well i mean the, the dynamic range on it really is as good as advertised it's remarkable um but of course it's missing some things that uh you know that a, a commercial in production camera would have things like um a viewfinder uh and um you know, it doesn't it doesn't denoise the images automatically. So, kind of, you get the images and then you have to denoise them after the fact. And uh, that's so when you, before you've denoised them, you look at the images and you go, "Ooh, that's a bit noisy," but it cleans up pretty good. Uh, so, so, what was it about Delivery Boy? Uh, I know it has visual effects in it, both special effects, explosions, and, and, and as well as other visual effects. But what was it about that film that made it feel like you wanted to actually use a camera with such high dynamic range? Or is it simply that for any filmmaking, you like the idea of a, a wider dynamic range? Well, yeah. I mean, I really think that obviously dynamic range is one of the most important things about image quality in general and, and ease of image acquisition. 
So, um, you know, re- to a certain extent, any film would have done. But the, the reason that we went for Delivery Boy was because it kind of, it enables us to bring in a lot of things um, that, that do well in HDR. I mean, the, the explosions do look great um, in HDR. I mean, you can really pull out a lot of detail in the explosions that would get blown out on, uh, on any other camera. Let's, let's discuss that for a second. If you've got a shot, you having an explosion going off. Um, there is going to be a large amount of dynamic range generated, uh, one imagines, from the quite severe contrast change between pre- and post-explosion. But yeah. is there any issue in trying to make that dynamic range compressed down to a obviously more displayable dynamic range in, I guess, making something look fake simply because I'm not used to being able to see that much dynamic range compressed down to a, to a more limited range for viewing? Well, that is always a risk with HDR. And if you look on the kind of like on the Flickr groups for, for HDR, you see a lot of stuff that, that we kind of call surreal HDR that kind of is not really naturally accurate, but um, is kind of tone mapped, um, you know, that kind of crazy tone mapped stuff that you get. So there's, it's very easy to get that kind of really terrible look out of it. But um, really, the getting it into LDR in a much more nice way is is fine. And it's actually kind of very similar sort of process to the way that you would take um, take film and transfer film to video. Um, so you can display that on a low dynamic range display. Okay, well, let's discuss that then. So you've got an explosion shot for, for the film, and you have two choices, I would assume. One would be to do a telecine approach to film, which is to say, I'm going to sample a limited dynamic range from the larger dynamic range that's inherent in the film stock. In this case, obviously, I'm using an analogy because you've got a digital file, a raw file that's come off the camera. You could choose, if you like, to look at the dark part of that picture or you could assume to look at the light part of that picture. And that is really the function of Telson he did. The second function, which I think you're just referring to, is the idea of some kind of tone-mapped version where I'm going to compress a a wider dynamic range into a lesser dynamic range. And, And for that, of course, you... Uh, don't inherently, but you do open yourself up to the possibility of producing something that is so tone-mapped as to be unrealistic. And, of course, you're doing visual effects with it, which, of course, would work against that. Which of those two approaches are you taking? Well, what we're doing is actually um, we're, we're tone-mapping it, but we're tone-mapping it largely by hand as opposed to using um, you know, uh, an algorithmic approach. Um, and that means that, you know, because... Quite often, you'll you'll look at the, at the images uh, and you'll realise, you know, actually, well, what, what what I want to see is I want to see the detail in the heart of this explosion, but I don't. So I need to bring the explosion down, but I don't want to make everything else completely dark. So I'll you know I'll just use a power mask on the explosion and have different levels adjustments um, for you know within the mask and outside the mask. So you can actually get really quite fine-grained control over the areas of the image that you want to, um, you know, the, the, you can pretty much kind of pick an area of the image and go, I would like this area of the image to be exposed so kind of thing. Well, walk me through, yeah, walk me through a shot, uh, not necessarily an explosion shot, but I mean, on set, the camera is about what the size of a, a red one, a kind of a size of a sort of a standard camera in, in that sense, and it holds what PL mount lenses? Uh, it has, um, it's got an IMS mount system actually. Um, okay. So you, we can basically put pretty much whatever types of lenses we like on it. What are you shooting with on uh, Delivery Boy? Um, we were actually shooting with um, some Nikon primes for Delivery Boy. 
And then on set, you're, you don't have a viewfinder, you said, so I presume you've got some kind of monitoring coming from a, what, to an external video village style monitor? That's right. The, uh, the, the camera has got a, um, uh, a, a fiber optic cable that comes out of it, then goes into a big RAID array. Um, and it needs the RAID not so much for size, although the files are huge, but for speed of storage, just because it's kicking out a huge amount of bandwidth. Uh, and then we have a monitor attached to that system. And with that monitor, we can basically view kind of, we can scrub through the amount of exposures. So it's an LDR monitor, but we can basically decide whether we want to look at it, uh, you know, at the brightest part of the image or the darkest part of the image or anywhere in between. And it's really quite remarkable just sort of scrubbing through it on set and seeing, you know, something that looks, you know, you'll look at it at one exposure and it'll look like the sky is completely blown out and then you'll pull it down and you'll see you've got all this lovely detail in the clouds and things like that. So so, so right now there's a, a world of independent filmmakers listening to this just absolutely salivating at the thought of being able to do an independent short film, presumably without a killer budget, where you have such interesting scope in terms of your lighting budget because one would imagine that you've got a lot of flexibility in what you can shoot as opposed to having to pull in a couple of gaffer trucks to kind of balance out what you're doing. Has it changed your approach to filming? Um, well, it, it is changing our approach to filming. I mean, it's, it's still very early days as yet. Um, and the right now, the way that the camera is rigged, uh, it actually performs better in very bright light. Um, uh, the guys at Spheron had to make a choice where they were going to peg the dynamic range to. And so currently uh, it, it performs well with an awful lot of light. Um, but we're looking into possibly changing the internal optics so we get more of, uh, more of the low end, more sensitivity in the dynamic range. Um, <clears throat> stupid question, but do you set an ISO on this? I mean, how do you approach a shot? I'm sorry? Uh, huh. How do you approach a shot? Well, in um, terms of an ISO and a, a light reading and just gauging what you're going to be doing. I mean, obviously, we, we sort of a lot of the rule books have gone out the window. Yeah, I mean, uh, ISO, it doesn't, it doesn't really kind of have an ISO as such. Uh, all, of the, all of the exposure is, is very much done manually um, on the lens, um, controlling the aperture. We, we don't, it doesn't have a shutter. Um, the equivalent to shutter speed is is the amount of time that you take to integrate every frame. Um, so that's a little bit interesting. Um, uh, in terms of getting exposure, I mean, really, you know, you can kind of just get an 18% grey card and use that as your middle point. Um, so explain what you mean about not having, uh, sorry, by, by uh, exposure, integrating frames, because I presume you have a... a finite period at which the sensor is active and if that's for half of a frame time then you could have an effective 180 degree shutter exactly exactly uh and and actually we were using um we were using mostly a 31 millisecond integration time so that's sort of like a 270 degree shutter kind of thing but it 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 doesn't quite work out like that because they're doing some crazy science voodoo inside the camera that i don't truly understand (laughs) right so, I mean, we've seen with the uh, the red testing with their HDRX uh, that it's kind of like a dual exposure kind of thing. Do you have a similar issue where you're trying to uh, to work? I mean, I presume the camera's running, what, 24 frames a second? Uh, we're running it at 25. It'll go up to 30. Right. Um, although, actually, um, we think that we can probably get 50 or higher out of it. So, so I'm on set, I've got a grey card in front of a monitor and I've said, okay, well, that looks pretty good. Uh, knowing that you have 
uh, you said as as published has published its twenty stops worth of um, variation. That's an enormous amount of latitude to go up and down on. Um, if you have the ability of having someone walk from inside uh, to an outside exterior, you know normally we'd be writing the exposure, doing all sorts of things to kind of balance that out. Presumably, you don't have to worry about that. No, not at all. No, I mean if you've got uh, you know if you've got if you're within the light range that the camera can pick up you know it, it, it really can pick everything up now you're not making of course um uh, a test film you're making a narrative film so i presume there are occasions where in fact i, I know there are occasions that you're not using this as the only camera on set i, mean, I think you've had some steady cam that had something other than a, a sphere on on mount i can imagine you've got a sphere on on a steady cam have you Oh, we really wanted to put it on the study cam, <laughs> didn't we, James? Ed, Ed was very Ed Moore was very eager to actually get the um, the sphere on camera on on, uh, on a steady cam, but the sphere on guys weren't too happy with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we were we were really it was really the the issue of I mean, we could probably have got the camera on the steady cam, but getting that twenty four terabyte RAID array um, <laughs> moved around with it would maybe have been a little bit problematic. Uh, we used a Canon five D uh, for uh, our our other camera. Kind of one extreme to the other there, isn't it? I mean, you're getting the difference between an 8-bit file that's uh, off your 5D Mark II, and I presume you're getting some kind of raw format that you're converting to an open EXR off the Spheron? That's correct, yes. Um, so, so, as I say, one extreme to another. Um, yeah. Are they cutting together at all? I presume they are, but it must be a bit Actually, of a... Yeah, I mean, it's it's not too bad. I mean, once it goes down to LDR, um, you know, it's... Uh, it's in a low dynamic range sort of format anyway. Once you once you compressed and tone mapped it, and um, are you doing that with proprietary very, software, or are you doing that because I, I saw it running uh, the files in Nuke at SIDGRAPH? Are you doing a kind of a Nuke pipeline? What's the pipeline to process these files? Uh, actually, well, we we looked at a Nuke pipeline, but in the end, we're actually mostly for actually processing the image data. We're, we're mostly using After Effects um, because. CS5 really does handle 32-bit uh, color spaces very well indeed now, and it's got no problems with dealing with open EXRs or anything like that. And it's got, um, you know, it's After Effects. It's got pretty much everything in there that you want. <laughs> uh, maybe not quite as rugged as something like Nuke, but um, it's certainly a lot more affordable. <laughs> so I guess the killer question is: Do you have any green screen you've tried with this? Uh, actually, no. We didn't use any green screen on this shoot, though. We are going to be shooting a little green screen on it um, over the next couple of weeks because that's something that I'm quite curious about myself in terms of how that's going to uh, how that's going to work out. Um, my feeling is that it will do rather well for green screen, as you would expect, but um, that's something that we've yet to test. Because, of course, the interesting thing is that while many of us have open EXR pipelines, nearly all of that material is sourced from a much more limited dynamic range uh, source. So whether you have 12-bit linear, whether you have a film scanner that's producing a you know 10-bit log file from a 12 or 14-bit theoretical limit, you know you, sure. you guys are some of the only people in the world that are actually sourcing your material at uh, at a kind of a floating point open EXR level, which means that I can't imagine necessarily even the keyers have uh, been. De- I mean, they, they obviously. The files are upconverted, but it's not that they technically won't work, but they haven't actually been fed with this kind of material much before. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's definitely an issue. Um, but, of course, I mean, people have been using sort of 32-bit kind of images in CGI for quite a while, um, you know, so there is, the tools are kind of there. 
Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. As I say, the tools are there because we've got the pipeline. It's just that we don't normally source the material at this level. There's actually a, sure. a, a more limited dynamic range going in. So, you know, the possibility for results in King should be spectacular. I mean, the only way that one can imagine doing it right now would be to actually render a CG hair scene against, a, say, a, a green CG background and then just feed right. that through, which, of course, would work. Um, but then, you know... The camera, as you say, uh, well, that noise reduction you mentioned, is that happening presumably at the conversion point from the raw format off the camera to the OpenEXR that you're exporting into the AE pipeline? Actually, we're, we're still kind of dinking about with the with, with different workflows for, for noise reduction at the moment. So uh, I couldn't say what we're actually precisely what we're going to end up doing. We've got a couple of different solutions that we're, we're evaluating right now. So, how long is the actual film? Is it? Did I understand it's three minutes long? Is that right, Delivery Boy? Uh, it's actually going to be a bit longer than that. Uh, it's it's going to be more sort of five or six minutes um, because we decided to do a really long, fancy intro shot. <laughs> so, yeah, so, it, it expanded a little bit, but the script itself is only four pages long. Three or four pages. So without giving the plot away, what is the range of environments that the script has called for you to shoot in? Well, we go from some fairly dark interior environments to some pretty bright exterior environments. Uh, and we had, um, uh, we had sort of a range of, um, a range of different weather conditions um, during the shoot, of course, it being England. Uh, <laughs> so we had sort of very bright, direct sunlight going down to overcast. And we, we really like the overcast skies because the clouds look so good. Um, when you uh, when you have them on the uh, on the HDRV, you you must have some serious storage issues because uh, at both on set, of course, you've got this this raid, but you're going to have to clear that presumably at some point if you have enough of a shooting ratio to warrant uh, you know needing to go on. Have you got an LTO system for backing this stuff up? I and mean, how is it? What's your sort of work you know station environment? Because I mean, this is generating a lot of material quite quickly. Yeah, we've we've basically got a bunch of um, raid drives, just like standard eSATA raids, um, uh, and we just kind of dump stuff off onto that and try and back it up as much as possible. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yeah, well, I can imagine that's quite a bit. What what is the the f- is the output of this? No, it's not nineteen twenty by ten eighty, is it? It's higher resolution than that, isn't it? Well, no, we're working at 1920 by 1080. Oh, okay. So that's what the camera is producing, or that's just your output format? That's what the camera is producing, we believe. <laughs> <laughs> Although Spheron have hinted that they, might, they think they might be able to get 2K performance out of it. So. Sure. So I guess the thing is, uh, let's say you were doing another production, you were doing a, another feature film, there was a, um, a sequel to, uh, to Triple Hit that came along, and the camera obviously had, had advanced, uh, and this is sort of a year from now. If you're going into a feature with uh, a camera that has this kind of dynamic range, do you think that uh, it would change how you approach the film? And to a certain extent, would it even change how you approach sort of setting up the scenes for the film? Yeah, I think it would. I mean, what, uh, what would you say about that, James? I think I think it definitely influenced the way that we shoot it, um, and also the way that the, the shots are, are definitely designed because it allows us to do things that you you weren't able to do before. Um, I think that um, t- in twelve months' time, think the the, the playing field will, field will be very different um, because this is very much prototype technology at the moment, and there are obviously a lot of things to be ironed out and a lot of workarounds to to figure out. Really, this was the first chance for us to, to do anything like this with this camera. 
Um, Twelve months from now, if we're if we uh, you know do shoot a feature on it, then I think you'll, we will approach thing a lot of things in a very different way. Though I think we should point out for people that are listening that that while the, this camera is very new and we've discussed it being you know really at a prototype level. The company themselves are one of the most experienced companies when dealing with HDRs because the Sphere yeah, ones, Sphere ones really know their stuff. This they is really, like, yeah, really uh, very successful company. Are, are really solid on the um, on the on the software as well. I mean, they're they're you know they really know what they're talking about. We had a Spherocam as well on set, the um, panoramic HDR yeah. camera. So we were using that to get um, dynamic relighting maps um, for use in our for our VFX and things like that. So, yeah, I mean, and, and the Sferocam, of course, is, is remarkable. I mean, you've got 26 stops of, of latitude in that. So, Yeah, and not only that, but, I mean, it's uh, beyond even the visual effects realm that it's used, the the standard vertical offset so that it can get a, not a stereoscopic but a, you know, dual image scan with a fixed mm-hmm. offset for producing mm-hmm. uh, three-dimensional reconstructions of scenes. Is These guys really know what they're doing. It's a very competent company. So it's, although this camera is new... The, the technology behind it is in many respects uh, from one of the, the guys that or the team that know HDR almost better than anybody else. Yeah, I mean, um, Gerhardt and Gunnar are both phenomenally smart guys. They really do know their business. Certainly the technology is there. I think it's more the application that's, that's new. Um, and, um, you know, we've, we've spoken about some of the, the limitations of a camera like this in a, um, in a working environment. And um, I think that's what's going to change a lot over the next 12 months is, is how this technology can be harnessed on set more, more efficiently and more effectively, really. Yeah, I think that it's the workflow that uh, we're all interested in and just the first-hand experience of what it's like to film because, uh, you know, quite frankly, we're, we're kind of accustomed to looking at a scene and judging what you have to do for lighting it. Uh, obviously, every time a new technology comes along, whether it's be stereoscopic or whatever, you kind of relearn a couple of your skills and... Uh, and certainly lighting for that kind of dynamic range where you can uh, move so effortlessly between these vastly different exposures is, uh, is really moving stuff into post-production that otherwise we'd have had to have pegged down in production. Exactly. It gives you a lot of latitude in post. One of, one of the things, though, that you mentioned there is sort of moving from one environment to another. And at the moment, with the camera... Um, the, the the dimensions of the camera and the the fact that you've got we work on a five meter tether to a twenty four um, terabyte RAID system. Moving the camera is quite difficult. So most of the shots that we've done um, have been static shots. So that element of being able to move from one environment to another and not have as big a lighting setup as you might imagine you'd, you'd need, um, or as you say, having to ride the exposure. Um, that's not something at the moment that we were, we were um, really able to explore as much as we wanted to, um, but hopefully something that we will be able to explore in the future as, as the technology gets developed. Yeah, I mean, the obvious classic use of this sort of technology, not, not um, hitting on your particular film, is in a car shot, obviously being able to carry the interior exposure of two actors talking to each other from from uh, a camera's point of view while also maintaining what's happening outside the windows, which is normally vastly blown out or just, you know, completely done with green screen to fake it out and then and then it looks wrong. Um, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and as I say, going between two scenes, not even physically, I mean, you know, a, a simple pan could take us from, uh, from not seeing a doorway to seeing one. And uh, again, you know, this idea of... Uh, um, windows lights or just outside the windows of a car can just present a real problem to a cinematographer it seems incredibly simple when looking at it you, you must 
give me your opinion though like are you just pleased with the look of the film now that you're starting to just look at rushes and work your way through it yeah, overall, I'm very pleased with the with the look of the film. I mean, we we really did acquire some quite nice footage, so I'm not I'm not too worried about being able to cut a decent short out of it at all. Uh, yeah. What's the timeline for the post production on this? What, you know, how long have you got to actually finish up uh, Delivery Boy? Um, well, we're hoping to have it finished up as soon as possible. Um, there is an awful lot of post processing that has to be done on these honking great Spheron files, so a lot of that is being cranked through at the moment. Um, just to get it into uh, into a state where we can actually start working with it. Um, how, how big is a single frame, just in megabytes? Uh, about twenty five megabytes. Okay. Um, I think it's just off the top of my head. I think that's right. Um, you must be really glad that it's only nineteen twenty by ten eighty right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If it was four K, it would be definitely quite an interesting challenge. <laughs> Hundred mega frame. Um, so, so you're hoping to get the film into presumably short film festivals or? Yeah, I mean, we've, we're gonna, we, we'll be um, doing it in short film festivals. We're also going to be releasing it over the internet, um, a- along with a documentary um, that James is making uh, about um, HDR imaging in general and about our experiences with it. Um, and uh, the, the whole project has been funded by the EPSRC, which is the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council in the UK. And so it's all really kind of about um, letting people know about this technology and getting them to, you know, getting them to sort of see it and, and engage with it and learn, uh, learn what it's about. So we're kind of hoping to release both of those together before the end of the year. Excellent. Um, but we can't be any more specific about timescales than that right now. Well, uh, I'd welcome you letting us know when that's the case so that we can point people to the uh, URL well, to, uh, to view it. We'll absolutely be telling you straight off the bat. Thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Great. Fantastic talking to you. Cheers, Mike. Nice chatting to you. So, I mean, full marks for taking this lab-based camera, this fully scientific, you know, refrigerator-sized thing, I guess, out into the wild and, and wanting to actually shoot a short film with it. Well, I think so. I mean, the guy that, that I mentioned before, Dr. Alan Chambers, who's got the, you know, basically the setup. um, that they have at the University of Warwick, and this is quite common in, in the UK, um, they have a brief to work with industry and they also have a brief to do research. Um, and so they have kind of like spin-off parts from the university. It's quite, it's not, I wouldn't say it's commercial, but it's definitely got a commercial bent. In other words, it's not aiming to be lofty philosophical research. It's mm. aiming to be very... Now, so what they're contributing, which I think is really interesting, is a massive substantial file reduction. If you like, and this is to use an analogy, because it's not literal, mm. but an analogy is that they are going to provide the R3D-ness to this camera. Yeah. So you will get this um, HDR encoding system and an HDR playback system, which will, unlike R3Ds, be independent of the camera. So I could encode any HDR into this. So theoretically, you could shoot on a RED camera run it out as a TIFF sequence and then re-encode it and then use the 101 compression and continue on. So it's a different philosophy from RED that, of course, does the encoding at RED and no one else can write an R3D file, which is fine. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying it's different. And these guys at the University of Warwick are developing the system. So, of course, full marks them for saying to these other guys, go out and shoot something. Let's find out what the issues are. And, you know, I mean, that's great. And I think that that's what you should be doing. But I think it's phenomenally interesting when you start doing, well, if they get up to 50 frames a second with 20 
stops dynamic yeah. range. That's a really interesting uh, camera. And s- quite separately, it's really, really interesting technology to have somebody producing a high dynamic compression system that doesn't tone map. It actually just produces a smaller HDR in the same way that uh, R3D doesn't tone map. It just produces a smaller RAW yeah. file. But also, obviously, interesting how, I mean, it's not, not taking anything away from what they're doing, but obviously red and closing the gap now, 18 plus stops, and this is only in the first few months of their development. It's ob- I guess what I would say is that the, the guys that I've spoken to at Spheron have a very different attitude to red. So, for, and, and, I, and, I'm, and again, I mean no criticism of either company when I say this, but literally it's like uh, sugar and salt. You've got the guys at Red who are saying, this is awesome. This is, you know, frigging going to blow your mind. We're going to blow the roof off filmmaking, yeah. which is great. And it is, I'm not saying it isn't true, but it's, you know, that kind of thing. The Germans that are behind the Spheron thing are saying, uh, okay, we've got some really cool technology. We're working on developing it. We don't want to hype it. We don't want to show it too early. We're going to develop this up into a very viable, hardcore production environment thing. Um, no, we don't really want to talk about it much more right now. No, we don't really want to um, do anything more about it right now. When mm. we've got it ready, we'll show it to you. Right. Well, look, again, top marks for, for actually getting out. I can't wait to see it. But, um, yes, it's interesting to see how that gap's going to And do close. we think that it's a one-horse race? I don't think so. I mean, I think that we could happily have several companies producing high dynamic range cameras and mm. that'd be great I, I mean if we know anything it's that and I, and I know you agree with this competition is really really healthy sure but they just don't see themselves as being in in a direct race with red no no i mean spheron guys have come from a, a whole different sort of background they're more scientific more sort of uh, for visual effects and and all that sort of stuff well i tell you the spheron camera the, the other one that i mentioned before that gets used in um forensics all the time mm. for recording at a scene mm. uh so that later on you can say yes these bullet shells were over here and i can see everything that was going on because the exposure the light should give yeah me. literally yeah um, plonk it in one spot and shadows highlights exactly interesting and there there will be an enormous amount of industrial applications of hdr technology now i'm not saying that they're not going to produce a uh, camera that you can use for filming Mm. they they obviously are but um but you know yeah i I, you know nobody i think says red is doing a play for hdr technology across all industries no right whereas i don't think anyone says that the spheron guys are only interested in hollywood features or yeah anything like it no no it's great to have uh, a really diverse sort of playing field i I gotta say in both cases they're both nice guys you know like you talk to the red guys great guys really enthusiastic and passionate you talk to these guys they're really dedicated to getting it right um i I just think the world's a good place for having these kind of people in it um, on both camps but you know i love i I just don't want to be like hype versus non-hype kind of argument but, hey, I'm glad to, that they took the time to talk to us. As, as far as I know, they haven't really spoken to anybody else about this because they've been so conservative. Yeah. I think one of the yeah. reasons they talk to us is they know that we tend to be technical and mm. not just out to say this is better than that or Because there has been or, very little out and about about it, really. It's been sort of totally, yeah. quite minimal. Yeah, no, so I mean, anyway. Do they even have any more than that one camera? Uh, I am not aware of there being... This is the first time that this camera has been used on what you might call a film. Yeah. Um, and I'm not aware of them, any others in production, but having said that, they are not publicising them if they are. Um, so it could be, I just wouldn't know. But from what I gather, this is the, a world first. Cool. So, okay, um, that I think brings us to the end of our gear for this week and the end of an, another... Pretty much the end of the show. <clears throat> so yeah. I guess I, my only question is, did you sugar out on candy last night on Halloween? 
No, we're really candy. It was sort of Halloween Scrooges. We kind of just, really? I don't know. Yeah, I just... I had Rocky Horror, Horror Picture Show playing off the, off the LP. That I've, I've got a new record player and I had the old, uh, yep. Excellent. Actually, and did you go like, your kids go trick-or-treating? The scariest thing that I did is I put on an old um, uh, Teddy Boy jacket that I had from the 80s that was bright pink with black trim. <laughs> yep. That you've never seen. No, but, thank but, you. Thanks for that. Yeah. I'm good. That was probably the scariest thing that we did Let's at our house. Let's keep it that way. Thank you. Um, apart from that, uh, the kids had a good time, which was good. Yeah. No, like I, I think, I guess in this country, it is, it is changing, but in this country, we don't really embrace it pretty much. You just get kids knocking on the door with no costume, just saying, give us, give us some lollies. So I'm sort of, I haven't oh. really fully embraced. Some kids are, but, you know, it's not entirely fully embraced and, and there's not really the history of it. So it really is just a bit more of a, you know, grab for lollies. And I don't see any awesome, awesome kids entirely dressed up like, I don't know, power droids and freaking... Um, I saw two ninjas in the supermarket yesterday, which was interesting. It took me by surprise. But that's nothing unusual down at your No, not mine. A couple of ninjas, a couple of Jedis before breakfast? Nope. Nothing unusual in that. So, no, I'm wearing Halloween Scrooges. Shut the door and uh, stay indoors until it passes. <laughs> Party central at <laughs> the right. Windgrove house. Yep. All right. Well, um, thanks so much for listening, guys. Um, we have a uh, do we have a Twitter shout out for the uh, for no, the week? No, I haven't. I have honestly haven't had a moment to even think about it. To be honest, really? Nope. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to give a Twitter shout out. Um, it's more VFX related than it is Red Center, but what the hell? Um, Paul Franklin from uh, DNEG is on Twitter, and it's Paul J Franklin as one uh, continuous thing. And Paul posts lots of really interesting stuff, um, but also he's gen- genuinely like obviously when someone really senior gets on Twitter, you're a bit nervous. Are they going to actually do it very often? But he's been going for a while now. He's answering questions. I bring this up because uh, Jason Diamond, who I forgot to thank earlier in the episode, um, you, was twittering back and forth with Paul Franklin, but. Paul Franklin, obviously VFX supervisor off Dark Knight and, and uh, Inception and stuff. And so if you're into uh, that kind of stuff, he tends to post really good um, clips and behind-the-scenes stuff and things that are, are of interest. And also, of course, anything to do with the films that he's been working on. So um, I'm not, not necessarily a, a Red Century one, but definitely one that's uh, worth following. Of course, you can find me on Twitter as Mike Seymour, but the best place to find me is over at fxguide.com. And uh, again, just a big thank you to Jason Diamond uh, for his help this week. Also, Jeff, of course, for that terrific story that I yes, played, the VFX production. Jason, on uh, Twitters, you uh, are? I am twitter.com slash Wingrove or uh, probably my Vimeo page as well, vimeo.com slash Wingrove or jasonwingrove.com. Have my you... rapidly expanding online presence. You're rapidly expanding <laughs> online presence. All right, there's a lot of stuff coming up uh, in weeks to come. We've got some really cool interviews lined up and Indeed. some really awesome stuff happening uh, later in the year. Yep. So um, stay tuned. But as I say, thank you for being around with us for 75 episodes. We really appreciate your... I mean, honestly, we genuinely really appreciate your support. Uh, absolutely. There's no point doing it without you guys. Thank you for listening and uh, email and feedback. Uh, speaking of which, red at fxguide.com if you've got any thoughts, comments, um, suggestions please let us know. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or comments, please email us red at fxguide.com. Copyright 2010, 
FX Guide, LLC.